Deep in the night, your heart fills with dread Probably a murderer who wants you dead It could be a ghost, a demon or worse Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse It's hopeless, you're doomed, you'd call a priest if you could You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood I'm gonna kill you Hello and welcome to A Conversation with our series where we sit down and talk with creators, other workers in the true crime space, and today we have got two very special guests. They are the hosts of the Hero Maker podcast, Jen Morrison, who also serves as Vermont's Commissioner of Public Safety, and Andrea Schreeman, a writer, director, and executive producer in Los Angeles. And we had such an engaging conversation. I'm just, I, I could have talked for hours. Oh my gosh. The podcast alone is so very important. It centers around the 1988 murders of their college friends, Rachel and Warren, who was tragically taken from them and their families and the community far too soon by a serial killer and yeah. serial rapist. And through this podcast, they're hoping to help people heal that it's, it's just amazing. And we talked recently about the ripple effects of a crime and you never know how far that really reaches. And Andrea, so like poetically pointed out in this, that they're hoping the same thing happens with this podcast, that the ripple effect of healing, because it, and you'll hear in their show and even in our interview, kind of these heinous murders happened. And then everyone kind of had to go their own ways just by the nature of, of college and whatnot. So reconnecting and then, having interviews and sit down conversations with surviving victims that were able to escape family members of the deceased victims. It's extremely, extremely powerful, especially coupled with the fact that they were the friends of the, the people hosting this. So, and they're also just brilliant women and just I, I mean I was like can you just narrate every audiobook ever <laughs> like the way they speak and just it's their knowledge and now like the jobs they have now and how maybe those even were kind of like directed by what happened it's just like you said, engaging very much so. Yeah, extremely engaging. And the case itself is the Alfredo Prieto is the serial killer who took Rachel and Warren. And the podcast covers not just the victims, but also they talk with Prieto's defense attorney. They talk yeah. about they talk to investigators in the case. And so you'll hear Jen and Andrea talk about that, their hesitance as having this personal connection, but also understanding that the whole story needs to be told. And so that balancing act between those two things, but just from their firsthand experience of what it's like to be impacted by sudden a sudden violent act like that, and then what it does and how it changes your life. And the other goal of their podcast is to kind of distill the wisdom and the information they get from law enforcement to improve practices with victims' rights and survivors that need support, and how even just as friends and family members, you need support and how that was absent back in 1988 when this occurred, but how they law enforcement, policing, and victims and survivor advocacy has evolved and what Jen and Andrea are hoping to do to help it evolve further. And they're, they like to uplift nonprofits, uplift some of these, uh, some organizations that may help shift policy that can make these big impacts so that you're not only getting to continue your friend's legacy by telling their story, but you're also making their legacy matter by impacting mm -hmm. future because we're never going to be able to stop all violence, but what can we do to respond to it and to hopefully uh, as much as we can, you know, slow it down, stop it. So yeah. it was it, to, to feel so overwhelmed by so much violence going on constantly. It's, it was a beautiful thing to sit down with two people, not only who had witnessed it firsthand, experienced it firsthand, but two that are working really hard to try to make their mark and make their impact in an industry that it, it, it can be used for so much good. And they really mm -hmm. are doing that. So incredible. They're both incredible people. The, um, knowledge and experience that Jennifer has just from her time serving as a cop for the past few decades. And then 
that juxtaposed with being able to look back at how your friend's case was handled now as a person in law enforcement. Yeah. And see like kind of where things went wrong and where the ball got dropped and like how, what policy does need to change. And some of the sources and organizations that they talk about, I had never heard of. And I'm, it gives me hope to know that there are programs like this that are in place to help law enforcement and others just be more compassionate, know how to better understand when things like this are going on. And it's, it's just a very hopeful and inspiring conversation with these two lovely women. We really, really appreciate Jen and Andrea taking the time to talk with us. Check out the episode description and show notes for more information on the organizations that we discussed in the interview. You'll also be able to find links to find their podcast, and you can watch the full video version of this episode on our YouTube channel. So head over to youtube.com slash Sinisterhood Podcast, and you can watch us as we talk with Jen and Andrea. So please enjoy our conversation with Jen Morrison and Andrea Schreeman, hosts of the Hero Maker Podcast. Welcome to a conversation with our series where we bring special guests on to talk about something we think you all need to hear about. And today, our guests are the hosts of the Hero Maker podcast, Jennifer Morrison and Andrea Schreeman. Welcome, Jennifer and Andrea. Thank you so much. We're really happy to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, Now, your podcast is a really special podcast. The Hero Maker surrounds the tragic death of your two college friends uh, that you you were there when it all happened and went down. How did you all react at the time and then take that into creating the podcast? What made you want to tell this story of all stories? I think I could take the how did we react in the time part and I'll pass the how we got to the Hero Maker podcast over to Andrea. Um, at the time this happened, it was December of 1988. It was right at the end of the fall semester. We were, in fact, approaching coming right into exams before everybody would go away for a month. And uh, a group of folks from the GW athletic community, I was a GW soccer player. Andrea was a gymnast. Um, we hung out with wrestlers, baseball players, basketball players. Like The athletic community mm-hmm. was pretty tight, at, as it is at many colleges and universities. Uh, And a group of our friends went out to a bar called Mr. Day's to hang out with each other before everybody went their ways before the holidays. And um, two of the folks who were in that group were Rachel Raver, who was a soccer player, but she had just graduated, and her boyfriend, Warren Fulton III, who was a baseball player. And something happened to them between the time they responsibly left the bar early that evening, that Saturday evening. They actually left early uh, before anyone else because they were going with uh, Warren's parents the next morning to a church event uh, for Mm -hmm. the Salvation Army. So they left well before everyone else and they were never seen alive again. Uh, And then on the Tuesday of that week, uh, their bodies were found in a field in Reston, Virginia, uh, off of what is now the Dulles Access Road. Um, And Rachel had been raped and murdered and Warren had been executed. Um, Mm. And that when, when, when I think about what happened, it sent this immense shockwave through the entire campus, not just the athletic community in a city that previously had sort of been our playground, you know, Washington DC is really fun to be young in felt very sinister and scary all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then of course, Everybody, everything was happening trying to finish the semester, and then we all went home with our grief and our fear. Uh, So it was really a very traumatizing time, uh, and that nothing changed. I'll I'll, I'll hand it over to Andrea by saying that really nothing changed for years to come. So, Andy, why don't you take it? Sure. Um, So the the next part of the question is, I was just kind of like hanging on this idea that nothing changed. We didn't get a lot of information Mm -hmm. about the case. Um, I would say that people started to deal with their grief in different ways. Um, In exploring sudden violent loss, we've learned, I've learned that there's a spectrum of how people respond. So some people are like, oh, they just shut down and they get smaller and they kind of aren't sure how to navigate their fear and their concern and their upset and and the, and the grief. And then other people get like immediately into action. And I think Jen mm. is a great example of someone who got 
immediately into action. She was kind of already interested, and I'm speaking for you, Jen, but she was already interested in law enforcement to some degree, or I guess police, cops. She liked cops. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then... <laughs> yeah, it was the late 80s. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, she liked, she liked male cops. She, she, she liked that. Oh. <laughs> she was, something like that, Jen? Did you, were you dating a cop? She had a type. She had a type. I mean, this is great, but I had some friends from my hometown who were law enforcement officers on the local police force. And then when I was in college, a little bit after this incident, I did an internship at the United States Secret Service Washington field office. And that wow. like really catapulted my interest from it being more of a, a passing interest in, wow, I think policing would be fun because it's never the same day twice mm-hmm. into the events around Rachel and Warren's murder and their crime not being solved in the time that we were at GW felt mm-hmm. impossible to me that two beautiful humans could be wiped off the face of the earth and nobody was held accountable. And I, and we were grieving. I had all these younger soccer players as the captain of the team. I felt responsible for their sense of safety and there were no answers. And I thought to myself, mm. how, how can that be? So in the absence of answers, I, I felt a keen, um, desire to help families in similarly situated and to be able to be empathetic when you're interacting them with them as a law enforcement officer. So it's a, it's a long way of saying that, yeah, there were plenty of good looking male cops that I, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed knowing, uh, but that's um, not exactly why I became a police officer. Right, that's my point. Was, like you were kind of, yeah. it was a shiny thing for a while, but then you, it, there was an internal motivation that kind of clicked in. Mm-hmm. She changed her major. She got that, um, that internship with the secret service. She went on to you know, become a police officer, head up a sex crimes unit. So to me, that is one of those examples of people who got highly motivated from from this event. I'm more of a someone who kind of shut down a little bit. I, I, um, it triggered me. Um, I And I didn't have a lot of resources, personal resources for how to navigate that, especially as a kid. And by the way, the university was not as maybe proactive as it would be in a day like today where things like this are so much more. They have systems in place for really Mm -hmm. um, offering people support. Um, in in mm-hmm. in very shocking and upsetting moments like this. So um, I, one of the soccer players said to me, yeah, well, they just patted us on the back and said, go take your finals, honey. Um, so it yeah. was it was rough. And what we're finding now is, you know, we're approaching the 35th anniversary of their deaths, mm-hmm. Rachel and Warren's deaths. And here we are 35 years later talking about the event and it is bringing a beautiful layers of healing that Jen will say that she didn't even realize that were there mm-hmm. to, you know, after her life of service and life of um, being able to approach events like this, where I haven't approached very many um, events of violent loss in my life. And we're all going through a healing, but we're noticing that I'm seeing it almost as a balance that there was so much terror put into the world from from literally just one event but what you find out over time is that this their perpetrator was a serial killer and a serial rapist and it in, infected and impacted many many jurisdictions many families many professionals in the justice system investigators jurors i mean it just seeps out into so many directions mm-hmm. which i'm sure you've covered in your work here um but that now we're bringing this wave of healing and the healing does the same thing. So given the choice of someone who is putting evil into the world or mm-hmm. waves of healing, what do you choose? Um, and then mm-hmm. to answer your question, well, I guess I'll pause there to see if there's any thoughts or feedback, and then I'm happy to answer the second part of your question. Sinisterhood will be right back. Oh, for sure. Change of innocence has been was fascinating to for me to hear the day that you all heard they went missing, you know, that next Sunday of well, where are they? And to hear that some of you all thought maybe they had gone off and eloped because that they were college sweethearts. And it's so sad in any mm-hmm. any cases, but especially when one we a missing person that we now know the conclusion of, how your brain fills in the blanks with something so positive until you have suffered such a horrible loss like that. And I'm sure that sort of 
catastrophizes your worries, you know, going forward of like, you know, your buddy's missing for a few hours. Ah, well, you know, maybe they're just hanging out. Well, maybe they just eloped. Well, maybe no, it's, it's the worst case scenario. So I'm glad to hear you've turned that in, into healing, into action, and now into healing as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because they were two of the most responsible people in the whole friend group. Like, r- literally, I told you, they left to go home early so they could go to a church event in the morning. Yeah. The rest of everybody else is out partying to last call, right? Um, when the, when he did not show up for training on Sunday, they always had an optional Sunday training on the baseball team. Everybody knew something was very wrong. Mm. And when neither of them showed up for classes slash work on Monday, and then again, training on Monday, that's when everybody started going into overdrive. And that's where this theory of, well, maybe they eloped. It wouldn't surprise us. They're so in love, you know, type thing. And it was, as you said, a romanticized notion to protect your psyche and your soul from what ultimately became the truth. And, and this is before cell phones. This is before Mm -hmm. computers or anything. The way we found out was literally people yelling down the hall in a dorm where a lot of athletes live Mm -hmm. saying, the news is on, the news is on. And we had gotten a call that something was terribly wrong. And we all ran into this room and on the TV, they were carrying body bags out of a field in Reston, Virginia. And that's how we found out that Rachel wasn't coming back. Wow. That is beyond heartbreaking. We, we speak a lot, Andrea, to your point of, you don't realize the ripple effect that something like this has on people because especially when things are covered in the media at the time, we all assume, okay, the friends and family are obviously going to be affected, but you don't take into consideration the lawyers that have to work on this case, the cops, the jurors, at the ripple of their coworkers, and then those coworkers' families, because they are no longer the same person. And just how it really does have what one heinous act can change thousands of people's lives that never even interacted or met before. But I think what you said about the healing has the same effect. I had never really thought of it like that. And that's a beautiful way to think of it, that even 35 years later, you both are finding ways to heal. And through your podcast, everyone else that was affected can hopefully find a new way to heal as well. Have you have you heard from other friends that you had at the time there or family members and things that this is really helping them? We get a lot of thank yous and two thumbs up and we really appreciate you doing this and 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 then uh, a professional opinion from our friend Tom Jackman, who's a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the Washington Amazing. Post, who was supposed to co-host with Jennifer originally, but then started covering the trials for Jan- for the January 6th event and was like, I'm, mm. I apologize, but I haven't seen my wife in a month. And if I come see you after work, she's not going to be happy. I was like, <laughs> go, Tom. Um, but he also <laughs> congratulated us and let us know he thought that we were doing a good job. And, and so, um, but no, in terms of the healing, we get a lot of really positive feedback and it doesn't stop with the people who were there and impacted. Also Mm -hmm. the family members have been very um, complimentary. And, and I will say there is something to, this story was out there for a very long time. And this is a nice segue into why do we decide to do the podcast? It was out there for a very long time. In 2020, I was going to Sunday on my way to Sundance and I always uh, in Park City Utah and I when I go I always spend one night in Salt Lake with my college roommate who was a on the soccer team and um at the at the time so she knew Rachel as well and I just asked her right before I went to Sundance that year um why hasn't anybody ever done anything about this story Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's true crime. Everybody's into true crime. There's like a thousand streamers streaming true crime 24 hours a day. And this is what I'll say as a testament to maybe how the community is responding to what we're doing. I think there were a lot of opportunities for the investigators and the family and people on the inside to tell the story. People did come to them at times and request and they didn't say yes and they didn't feel completely comfortable. And to some degree at this point, we've earned a lot of people's trust. And because we're connected, I'm connected um, 
and I'm usually the the first person to kind of reach out to people who are involved um, between me and Jen. Um, I think that because of the proximity too, there is a there's a trust, and so we mm-hmm. have the privilege of telling the story and and meeting with people who maybe didn't feel comfortable prior to us or me um, saying that I think I wanted to shepherd this. And the way that Mm -hmm. kind of rolled out was I asked my roommate, why hasn't anybody ever done this? Um, And I will say a couple years earlier, so five years earlier, I had seen a post from Jennifer Morrison, Commissioner Morrison, who is the Commissioner (laughs) of Public Safety for the state of Vermont. We should probably say that. She has a highfalutin cop job. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had seen a post that she posted in 2015 uh, in her response to the execution of their killer. And it, it, pulled me in. It had so much humanity, so much clarity, so much framing. She related the events to her own life. She talked openly about the impact of this on and and losing Rachel and Warren. It was very heartfelt. And and I was I kind of got reconnected with Jennifer at that moment. And that was probably where the early seeds for this were planted. But then after seeing my um, roommate in 2020, I went off to Sundance and I just started saying to people, yeah, I'm thinking about doing a story about my two friends who were murdered in college. I mean, that pitch right there, seriously, everybody was like, what? And then yeah, I went, oh, yeah. oh, maybe this has legs maybe people will care (laughs) maybe people will want to hear this story so that then started me on the journey and i'll give you the quick version is um i got a development deal with a wonderful television company they helped me research and we pitched for years like a year of research a year of pitching to television companies none of the television companies purchased it i got all the rights back and then i was like okay how are we going to tell this story if we're not going to tell it with one of these streamers right now? And then I called mm-hmm. Jen and Jen said, <laughs> yeah, I'll help you tell the story. <laughs> well, she asked me if I wanted to be part of a podcast and I had never heard a podcast. And I mean, I knew what they were. I wasn't living under a rock, but I had never, <laughs> I had never listened to a podcast. And I was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I trusted Andrea. I knew that whatever creative pursuit she was after, I, I could stand by that. Um, yeah. And the, the deal with Andrea was I'll participate and be the mouth behind the mic, but you got to do all the research. Cause I just, in my, at the time, I think I was still the chief of police in Colchester. And then subsequent to that, I went back to Burlington police as the interim chief. Um, so I was at a place in my life where I just didn't have time for like a, an extracurricular pursuit. So the, sure. the, intentional plan was that Andrea would do all the research on all the other people involved in this case beyond Rachel and Warren's and the deep dive into Rachel and Warren's case. And I, in each episode, I learn new information from the guests we have because she has curated the guest list and she has connected them to the history of the case. And so part of it is me reacting as a practitioner and as a person who loved Rachel and Warren um, to what we're learning in real time. And yet, she's the historian on this. So mm. two co-hosts, accidental co-hosts, uh, when Tom Jackman <laughs> mm. had to pull out, uh, with different perspectives, watching the same play from the same balcony. So oh, what a poetic mm. way to describe that. That's a beautiful way. Do you, fi- have you found that new information you may have learned has reopened a lot of wounds or, you know, you're healing, but is there also new grief that pops up when you maybe learn new information or hear from a person that you hadn't heard from at the time, kind of their perspective? Well, I'd like to tell you that that was true, but having spent 33 years in the field of law enforcement, nothing about the depravity of my fellow humans surprises me at this Mm. point. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you that it was an absolute privilege to meet some of the other victims, family members, and um, and hear their story. And I could feel ve- a very deep connection to them because even though it was a different victim, it's the same killer and it's, they're all yeah. interconnected. So mm-hmm. I did feel um, tremendous compassion for many of our guests. I have to tell you, I felt like 
jumping up and rooting for our star witness, Lisa, who's the one who survived one of Prieto's attacks and got him on death row in California. Like Mm -hmm. that whole interview about her as a grown adult recounting this event that happened when she was 15. And I just wanted to say, yes. So yes, I felt very Mm -hmm. deeply about many of the episodes. All of the episodes actually were either personally or professionally very gratifying. Um, But there was no moment where I learned something that hurt worse than when the event happened in mm. happened in 1988. So the retelling of it, probably because I've been, you know, this, the coat of armor being built up over three decades, um, did not make it worse. It's only made it better. And um, the again, the ripple effects are so key. Like I think people underestimate how what how big one traumatic event can impact so many lives and indeed a whole community. And in this case, a whole mm-hmm. campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been, yeah. we've been very fortunate that people have given us their time and their authenticity. And I think the, the nuggets of wisdom that we've, we've tried to flesh out from each episode do leave some really nice tips for improvement for the system, the criminal justice system, the victim advocacy system, whatever part of the story we're, we're looking at that week. I really do think we're able to pluck some, interesting or provocative ideas for the future for practitioners like me who are at the beginning of their career, not the end. Sinisterhood will be right back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was going to be my question is it's a story well told and Andrea's skills as a storyteller, being a filmmaker and a writer, and then Jen's skills as a law enforcement practitioner. Where do you all see the role of true crime media in affecting policy changes? And also I noticed in, I believe it was the first episode, Jen, you were talking about the first 48 being crucial because the media eventually will create their own narrative and how vital it is that you get to witnesses before the media is created and narrative, but that narrative is going to be created anyway. So I guess what role do you see as true crime media in being responsible, ethical, and making sure that the narrative is victim-centric and also brings about these brings up these issues of this is going to affect people's entire lives. You know, didn't Rachel's sister ended up becoming kind of an advocate and uh, uh, wanted to, cause Rachel wanted to go to law school. So I guess that's my question is what media's what's media's role in storytelling and how that affects real world. I mean, these are real cases that happen to real people yeah. that I think sometimes folks get behind a mic and forget that, that there's the human cost of it. So does storytelling play a part in making things better? And if so, like what can we do all as storytellers to be better? Jen, I, I know Tom you're gonna. Jackman. Jen, I know you're gonna have a great. So you're going with Tom Jackman. I was gonna say Kelly yeah. McBride. Yeah, so, th- those were the two I was gonna point to. Was the Pointer Institute and Tom Jackman's personal observations of how things have changed since the late '80s to now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for it. And then I, I also would love for you to just mention Parallel Justice too. Um, just kind of like rewriting the tale because you, it, it's something that has come up. Do you remember that, Jen? The conversation. Yeah, no, we had? I, I, yeah, no I, I do. But let, so the role of the media in reporting true crime. I think that everyone would acknowledge that that sensitivity, that intersection of public health and public safety and media reporting has evolved a lot in 35 years. And Tom Jackman himself, who's very, very accomplished in the field of journalism, said that he looks back on some of the stories, whether those are headlines or things he wrote from three decades ago. And he's like, oh, I'm embarrassed by that. It's not Mm -hmm. sensitive. Like I was obviously going for a laugh or for sensationalism, you know, that type of thing. And now as a much more mature person, as a parent, he looks back and has a very different perspective of how that story should be told. Mm -hmm. Um, So the episode with Tom Jackman speaks directly to what you're asking Mm -hmm. about. Episode 17, episode episode 17 of the Hero Maker Podcast with (laughs) Tom Jackman. Star Witness, episode 12. (laughs) (laughs) And then we had a really fascinating discussion about this very topic with uh, the executive director of the Pointer Institute, which is the only institute for ethics in media in the country. 
Thank you, by the way, for having them on, because immediately when I saw that, I went and downloaded their courses on using proper language and terminology and true crime reporting and the impact. So I, I'd want to hear your perspective as the as the law enforcement professional and the storytellers. But thank you so much for sharing resources like that. And we'll make sure we link this in the show notes as well, because you're right. That's the, putting it as an intersection between public health, public safety and media, because words that you say matter, the, the mm-hmm. narratives you push matter and speaking about things with empathy and compassion makes other people think about things with empathy and compassion and not ask, ah, scrape them off, whatever. Everybody, it's a dime a dozen. Like you said, this old school yeah. kind of reporting. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for sharing. But there's also sure. this really cool thing that happened when we did talk to Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute, where I was listening to Jennifer and Kelly talk and realized that these three areas, the, um, the police PIOs, right, who are trying to put the story out there of what happened, like factual story, and the public health folks, and the media, they all say they have the same goal, and that is to keep the community safe. So if they're not in communication at all, how how are they doing it? And the media is probably the one that has the, they can be a little, you know, uh, wild west with like, well, we also have to get clicks, right? <laughs> but yeah. of mm-hmm. course, the public health and the police PIOs, they're not thinking about that. Um, they're thinking about safety and and public and, and keeping the community safe. But there's that moment at the very beginning, and because we're in a 24-hour you know, information cycle, whoever gets out there first, that's mm-hmm. how the story gets launched. And for a lot yeah. of people, it, it there's a lot of misinformation that can get released in the very, very beginning or conjecture or guesses or what, you know, whatever. So B- it really it takes, yeah, absolutely. T- yeah, tons of bias. So to take uh, just a breath <laughs> and to, for all of them, if they can take a moment to go, Here's the here's the story we need to put out there because I don't even know. Do they have twenty four hour PIOs, Jen? Oh yeah, in your sure yeah. But the but but the person who's working at night, right, is yeah. probably not the most right. senior PIO, right? <laughs> and to clarify, this public information officers that work within the communications, you know, head of a department. Thank you. Right. Right. Yeah. Correct. Well, you know, an interesting. It might be usually in a smaller police department. There is one or two. PIOs and they come in in the middle of the night when there's a big thing. But what there isn't in a small media market is an editor or a senior manager at 2 a.m. So whoever is watching the shop that night writes the headline, the subheadline, and how the story leads and reads. So yeah. there's like you could have Junior Birdman reporter covering an absolutely terrifying case for the community that is rapidly evolving and the facts are not known yet. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is the rub you asked about the first 48 hours. It's very true. Those are crucial from an investigative standpoint and nobody who's intimately involved with the investigation has time to worry about the public narrative. You Mm -hmm. are trying to lock down witnesses because people evaporate these days. You're trying to gather whatever, um, evidence there is, whether that's physical evidence, digital evidence, you are writing letters to preserve uh, cell tower records, you know, everything you can imagine is just, you are trying to lock in what you have in the first 48 hours. And yet there's this parallel universe that exists where the media is reporting based sometimes on what the police department has put out and other times they are, they're going to write, you said it, they're, they're, whoever gets the mic Just first conjecture. is going to set yeah. the story. And mm-hmm. it's almost uh, at times, like we spend more time correcting the misinformation that goes out there. And so we don't have a perfect answer for that, but the collaboration and the ethical responsibility that the Pointer Institute points out about how um, newsrooms from top to bottom can work across that public health and policing space to put out narratives that don't further terrorize um, their community, uh, that don't further um, raise the level of anxiety for a community that's pretty high on mental health problems already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of space for growth there. I think that's one of those fertile Mm -hmm. grounds we've stumbled upon in our podcast, that this intersection of public health, public safety, and the media is rife with opportunity for collaboration on a sunny day so that mm-hmm. when you have the storm, 
that you already have the relationships and you can all already trust each other and push a joint message with one voice that is accurate and allows people to make choices about their own safety, but does not spin up a frenzy of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's real hard to walk back all of that once you've put it out there. It's, Barn doors uh, open. Oh yeah. And then it just, it's uh, like a grass fire it just spreads, you know? No, do you? And now I appreciate the Pointer Institute also on their page. They brought up stuff about the language you use can help perpetuate in a bad way, can perpetuate negative stereotypes, dangers in policing. You know, if we do write more and more about it, becomes this public narrative of a certain type of people are more predisposed to commit crimes. Therefore, those people are policed stronger. So I think you're you're right to point of like making sure that the community aspect of policing and the community aspect of the media and the narrative of we're all, you know, at the very base level, interested in the same thing. Have you seen in your experience at, at the high level of law enforcement you're at, areas where the public is pushing for positive policy changes that maybe, like you said, you kind of stumble into. We should have been looking at this already, but until a story was told that brings up this policy issue, the storytelling is so powerful. Now you see a public outcry for some type of improvement in policing, investigative techniques, or, or law enforcement. Jen, maybe I think um, this would be a good opportunity to talk about. Um, uh, I know you have something brilliant to say because everything you say is so brilliant. Um, it really but, is. It really I'm is. Like, I was like, I'll listen to you for five hours. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, Please you don't do audio books. I think something <laughs> needs to be acknowledged here about Jennifer. You know, she is a progressive police leader, and I don't know if mm-hmm. you still go by that term, Jen, but it's on your LinkedIn. Um, but, <laughs> that must be true. It's on some it sort of um, But, uh, you know, Jennifer is in a small state that she will say is the uh, approximately the same size as a medium size American city. And she has, mm-hmm. fed, but she has federal resources because it's a state and, and, and state resources. And she um, tr- is try- tries new things that she has the flexibility to try because she has the access, but also it's so small that she can kind of oversee it. Right. And it's such a great, mm-hmm. she's such a great person to focus on because hopefully you can it can be modeled and expanded mm-hmm. in in different areas that are larger, right? Um, and meeting Jared's side of um, Center for Counsel was one of these moments where um, a media product like our the Hero Maker podcast pointed out someone who is doing amazing work that is improving the fabric of our society from many many angles um, and. Jen got she got the tingles when she first found out about uh, Center for Counsel and was like, oh, I know we need this. And maybe <laughs> yeah. that's something you can speak to, Jennifer, because hopefully we can help the the good work of that nonprofit spread as well, because they really are. They're helping incarcerated people, reducing recidivism, and they're also helping uh, police officers and um, bringing more mindfulness and and helping to slow down autonomic nervous response. And that's a good example, Jen. She, yeah, she just said it. So like this, this Hero Maker podcast journey has introduced me to some work being done in this case on the other side of the country at the Center mm-hmm. for Counsel that the second I started looking at their website and hearing Jared talk, I said out loud, like, where has this been my 30 plus years? I needed this. Wow. My people have needed this. Our community and our, our people who are leaving incarcerative status with no tools in their toolbox to be successful on the outside need this. So, you know, cut to the chase, that episode um, forged a connection between me and Jared. I got really jazzed about his work. I socialized it with uh, uh, some friends of mine at Department of Corrections that were working on some other things on. And then my team and I wrote a federal grant to try and bring a four-year program to Vermont that where the Center for Counsel would come and run programs, both with our Department of Corrections clientele and with first responder agencies to have two totally different types of benefits that will both be really beneficial for the entire Vermont community. And we're just waiting for the U.S. Congress to 
get the act together to give final approval no, to aren't that. Aren't we waiting on them to get so much together? Get their shit together, yeah, entirely. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. We'll make, we'll make some phone calls. Everybody call your call your congressman and be for like, sure. vote for this. I mean, it, you're right when you, you hear about something like that, because to clarify, the Center for Counsel, it focuses on mindfulness in policing as well as mindfulness with incarcerated individuals, right? With the idea that you utilize techniques of meditation and like you, things that will create a more thoughtful, mindful Person it's overall. way beyond that, and it serves a lot yeah. of different constituencies. Include they work in schools, they actually work oh, with amazing. corporations. They, but Jen, you could speak a little more specifically about the potential impact what on police officers. Would be great. Sinisterhood. We'll be right back. Yeah. So when I, they, they've been doing some studies um, over the last five years with police departments that they've partnered with. And it's basically a course that vol- uh, that police officers attend in cohort groups. And th- everything at the beginning is measured, your blood pressure, your this, you fill out all these surveys about your sleep, the quality of your relationships, this, that, and the other, L- lots, of, lots of data, right? And then they teach the police officers about the science of the stress response, like what actually physically happens in your body when you get into the fight or flight system uh, uh, situation. Um, So building tremendous self-awareness about what's going on in your body, and then they help rewire some of those responses to get out of your reptilian brain that happens at that moment of fight or flight to hopefully have greater self-regulation. So what does that mean for the people on the other side of a very tense encounter with a police officer? You're going to have a police officer with greater self-regulation, access to tools, deep breathing, whatever it is that they've built through the course of this training to keep them out of tunnel vision, audio exclusion in, into the fight or flight, which usually ends in a fight when you're the cop. Very rarely is retreat mm-hmm. an option, although it is an option. Um, and so more positive outcomes for police citizen encounters that, that previously might have gone into a use of force situation. Mm-hmm. And then they have uh, boatloads of data showing that the police officers who participate in these cohort groups that uh, last for about three months, and then they can come and check back in together as they wish in their circles. Um, they have people who no longer have blood pressure meds. They report much healthier relationships, uh, <sighs> drinking less, exercising more, better sleep, fewer uses of force. Um, so they're they're tracking all this data. And that's just one example of the work they do around mindfulness, self-regulation, um, and then there's a, other programming that is done with people who are either currently incarcerated or it, in the community, but under the supervision of the Department of Corrections. And it is similar but different work that is designed to prepare these people to be leaders, to be ethical, to um, wow. recognize uh, when a, a communication is becoming stressful or a situation is potentially becoming a place where you might want to puff your chest out. They're mm-hmm. giving them more tools to communicate with empathy and compassion and to listen and be fully present so that you can actually hear instead of being ready to give your response. Mm-hmm. And um, they are wow. having incredible results. I mean, they did work in, in a incarcerated, uh, in a prison on the ward where people were in for life without parole, no possibility of wow. parole. And they have had Many people who have completed their programming not just go on to lead circles of uh, of this work, but to mm-hmm. get paroled and are now on the staff of Center for Counsel or otherwise gainfully employed in the community, whereas prior to this in- intervention, shall we say, um, they had no possibility of parole. They were just going to be in prison the rest of their life. So that's yeah. the kind of work that we have found ourselves bumping into. And it is mm-hmm. my sincere plea that that will come to fruition in Vermont. It's going to be a four-year project, and I'll be happy to come back and report on that. Yes, uh, yes. Your, your question about that. public outcry and, and, and asking for policy changes in the wake of events, I could recount dozens of them. Yeah. Some positive and some ex- so negative, and I'll, I'll, um, wow. you know, whenever there's a sentinel event, people like a child is murdered or raped and murdered, we end up with new regulations, and some of them are wonderful. 
Some of them are helpful and I believe um, are, are part of the accountability network in our society. Um, Amber alerts, sex offender registries, uh, universal background checks for people working with vulnerable populations, that type of stuff. Those are all examples of things that came out of a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So some of them are very positive. But there's also been sentinel events in the community where the pendulum swings so quickly and there is such a strong reaction um, in a state or a local community that bears no resemblance to the conditions in that community at the time. What I'm specifically referring to is when um, a national social platform grabs the mic somehow in a community and, and declares that the police department is X or the state government is Y and that there's a crisis of you name the, the crisis and there's a tremendous um, following of that where mm-hmm. a narrative swings the pendulum in a community so that new policies are introduced that are not based on fact and they are certainly not based on local conditions or local reality. And the conversation happens in such a polarized way that the stakeholders that have been holding that community together and uh, the st- and everyone there is excluded and those public policy decisions get made out of feelings, not facts, mm-hmm. and frequently mm-hmm. by agendas that are from another state or another part of the country. So there's examples of both that happen. Yeah. No, certainly. And I think uh, Andrea and I spoke off the air about some of the nonprofits that you work with. And I think that's where uh, that the local, local, local aspect is so vital because they know I'm th- thinking specifically, I'll give you a moment to talk about the Dallas based nonprofit specifically, where it's someone in the community understands the community and is pushing for something that is a more of an, uh, an oh, a bigger tent, not a, it's us versus them. It's us versus the police. It's us versus, it's, we're all stakeholders in this community. Like it or not, cops aren't going anywhere and criminals aren't going anywhere. We all have to find common ground. We have to find plurality where we can get stuff done. Everybody stop hollering, shut up, come to the table. We've got to figure out and get stuff done. And the beauty of your show is to show off some of these, like, that's what the sounds like the Center for Council does, as well as some of the other nonprofits. Do you want to Andrea, give us a little bit about some of the ones you've found through the show. Yeah, but also this kind of gives me an entree to say when we when we set out to do the podcast, we agreed on two goals. One was let's tell as much of a story as we can, as full of a story as we can of what happened to Rachel and Warren. I always say we always say Rachel and Warren. Warren and Rachel. um, Mm -hmm. He's just as important in the story, and we miss you, Warren and Rachel. That was one of our goals. And when people come to our podcast, probably the most consistent feedback I've heard is that we are taking a 360 degree view of the event. And um, like Jen uses that balcony metaphor, um, we're, we're really trying to share the story from as many balconies as possible. And I think we've had some success good success there. But then the other goal was let's leave these nuggets of wisdom for the future in the area of criminal justice and public safety and law enforcement. And so that's where Jen has introduced me to many of her career professional buddies, cop buddies, and and also folks in different uh, departments. Like I got to meet a DNA expert from the Vermont Vermont Forensic Laboratory. Did I say that correctly, Jen? Yeah. And <laughs> and people like that so that we can now take like their 30, 40, 20 year wisdom and, and, and put that out there. So we, th- these nonprofits are in that classification. What are these executive directors or team members doing in these nonprofits that are rest in these sectors that that we've described, um, that we can pass that wisdom on. And so we have, we've already mentioned, I know we've mentioned two so far, Center for Counsel and um, the Pointer Institute. We also spoke with the National Center for Victims of Crime. Um, Renee Williams is the executive director there, and they have a wonderful hotline that is not yet 24 hours that they're that's coming, but they have a weekly weekday hotline um, at victimconnect.org. Uh, or you can just go to their website, which is victimsofcrime.org. And anyone in the country who has been a victim or, or is a survivor and would like to find resources in their area, they can go and 
and call them and and they'll get support and they'll get and they'll wow. get immediate um support resources for their area and that's a that's a great story and how that got started and and Renee is wonderful and they're doing great work there and as Jen will tell you, the whole victim services unit or area wasn't even, it was like barely a thought when Warren and Rachel were killed. And Mm -hmm, it has really mm -hmm. progressed to this day. I can't speak for every jurisdiction because one thing that we notice is some victim services units are stronger in some areas than others. It was certainly incredibly strong during the trial uh, Rachel and Warren's trials, which happened in 20, 2007 and 2008. Um, S- Sally Fayez is the um, now the director of victim services in Fairfax County, Virginia. And she kind of wrote the book uh, during that trial and did a great job with um, our families that were associated with that with that case. And then the other one that I would share with you is Dallas-based No More Violence, which is run by Trisha Allen. And she, uh, I was going to use a gang term, <laughs> was jumped into the, it's not exactly, but she <laughs> was kind of got into this whole field because yeah. of her own experience with loss and her, um, her, like her proximity to sudden violent loss of kids to gun violence. And that's what she started focusing on is how can she serve the families, um, that are impacted by gun violence. And now it's just children lost to violence. And what's amazing about no more violence and her organization and her team is that they walk with families from literally the moment of loss forevs once you're in the family you're in the family and they will show up for you no matter what you need and it can be things like some some families don't have a church home they don't have a community Mm -hmm. and they need community support in this really intense moment of loss having clothes to wear to the funeral um doing an event memorialization event when the family's ready whether it's a balloon release or or some kind of uh, memorial at the cemetery burial fees. She even brings people together and helps them with leadership training, integrating with the police department in their community by putting on these events that are like playing basketball, the kids of the community playing basketball with the police officers in the community. She is that, that nonprofit, No More Violence in Dallas is sees the need and fills it. Just says, oh, we need this now. We're going to do it. And the helpers. Grassroots. Yep. Yep. And and Jennifer talks a lot about how we need to re-knit the fabric of our communities back together. And that is that these smaller nonprofits, especially something that is local, like this Dallas organization, that is the work that they are doing. Mm-hmm. And and we just uh, appreciate them and hail them. And also say, if anybody hears this and says, oh, you all need to know about this nonprofit or this organization <laughs> that's doing that very same thing in your community that you know about, let us know. And we would love to feature them. Email info at theheromakerpodcast.com. I'm sure you'd love to hear from them. <laughs> um, that's the, the title. Yeah. The Hero Maker and Tragedy Brings Heroes. And Sinisterhood will be right back. You're right. It sounds like all of these organizations, they've they found something positive out of the heinousness. Well, and it's so important that you said once you're in, you're in it for life, because so often people are there for uh, surviving victims in the immediate crime and the immediate aftermath. But then Everyone else's lives go back to normal, but those people's lives will never go back to normal. And so to have to just to have that support forever is so important to know that like, okay, well, the funeral's done. So see you later. Like that they know that they're gonna have ongoing support because grief, like we all know, comes in waves and it's different for everyone. So you might think you're okay for a little bit, and then a year later your your lowest point so to have that continuous support is just paramount i think in those situations a point to be made here is that even government resources so there are local mm-hmm. government resources through victims advocacy in usually it's somehow connected to the police department or in some cases but those run out 
they end. There mm-hmm. is an end to that support, you know, because they are mm-hmm. moving on to the next family, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. There may be to. things that are evergreen, but I don't know of them um, in terms well, of government and- resources. But yeah, so it's nice that that this mm-hmm. organization is there for the long haul. And there's also just only so much legally that the government can do. When I worked at Legal Aid, I represented victims of crime who were uh, over 60. And just that was just my specific grant is what covered my fellowship. But all the victims of crime that came to us at Legal Aid, because we were a civil legal organization, so we don't do any criminal defense, but realizing that you you do have a financial impact from crime. You have a, a job impact from crime. Maybe you're going to get fired from your job because you've, you've survived something horrible and you have PTSD that's untreated. You don't have access to mental health. You didn't know. So it's so vital that there's a multidisciplinary approach. And I think saying like re-knitting the fabric of the community, part of my fellowship was finding stakeholders of, okay, the police department's a stakeholder, but also so this elder services or for children, you know, this children's services. So those centers where at Dallas and Dallas Fort Worth is very lucky that we have fairly, at least Dallas has a fairly progressive department that we want to have children's advocacy centers or somebody that can walk you through. But like Christy said, that does run out at a certain point. So the vitalness of this nonprofit aspect, this community aspect, and us as community members, finding those local nonprofits, supporting those, showing up, not even financially, just showing up when we can, I think is is so vital. And you titled the show Hero Maker because, you know, you said tragedy breeds heroes. You've displayed so many on the show so far, but the two of you, I think, it are a testament to taking something tragic and bringing so much untold positivity because just by sharing this, the center for counsel, who knows, maybe somebody that's listening is a law enforcement officer and they want to bring that to their community. And that's in two years, somebody might've died by gun violence who are now, they're not going to do that because the officer that they are, you know, face to face with has taken this training. It's just, there's so many untold ripple effects of what you're doing. I cannot speak to it enough. I'm so glad we had you all on the show today. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And having um, a podcast 35 years later after a tragic death is another example of still being there for people who, you know, a a lot of people may have moved on, but I know that you and the victim's family certainly have it and their friends. So knowing that their lives are still being valued and appreciated and shared is so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, it's so powerful. Well, for those of you listening, if you or someone you know is connected either personally or as a result of violent crime to Alfredo Prieto, a convicted rapist and killer who lived in in and around San Bernardino, California, Arlington, Virginia, and Jamaica, Queens, New York between the years of 1984 and 1990, Jen and Andrea would like to hear from you. Please email them at info at theherowmakerpodcast.com. Listen to the Hero Maker podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and check out the Hero Maker Pod on most socials and theheromakerpodcast.com. Andrea and Jen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. We love your show. We're a fan. We love yours. Yeah, I'm digging Freaky Friday. Oh, nice. We love it. Thank you so (laughs) much. Thank you. I have a lot of freaking stories I could freak you out with. Oh, please send them in. Here's the thing. Both of you all have a standing invitation. Come back anytime. We'd love to talk to you about uh, your own Freaky Friday experiences, the case, updates in the case, new nonprofits, new policy initiatives uh, that you think our listeners need to hear about. uh, We'd love to have you back anytime, please. I bet you you we could fill an episode with just some of the freaky coincidences from this case. We probably have some. Oh, yeah. So it'd be my pleasure to come back. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you again to Jen and Andrea. It was so lovely speaking with you. Everyone, please go check out the Hero Maker podcast anywhere you get your podcast. And thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It's a the, the time of being thankful, and we couldn't be more thankful for all of you. So thank you so much. If you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next. And we also post things for free members too. Uh, videos, other types of bonus content we'll post occasionally. So go on over, sign up, no harm, no foul. And then you can always bounce if it's not your thing. You <laughs> can also <laughs> join uh, at one of the other tiers to listen to over 500 hours of bonus content. There's audio, there's video, there's live streams, there's 
cameo reactions of us with <laughs> hippos. There's all sorts of stuff over there. And we always posted something wacky. This week, we our bonus content was an Am I the Asshole? And we discuss whether it's uh, cool to bring a pony to school. I don't know. Yeah. You decide. Yeah. You decide. You can also head over to SinisterHood.com and get all of your holiday shopping done in just one place. Click shop on the top banner to check out our merch like t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, clothes for your kiddos. You get cozy, warm sweatshirts. We have hoodies with zippers without zippers, beanies to keep your head and ears warm. So many cute things to make your holiday Sinisterhood-tastic. Sinister-tastic. Sinister-tastic at SinisterHood.com and click shop on the top banner. While you're on our website, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, check out the episode description. There's also fun things like topic-based playlists and links to live show tickets. Whenever we're on tour, we have live shows. Those will be posted there as well. You can follow us on Instagram and threads at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can watch the full video version of today's episode and all of our Freaky Friday interviews, as well as coming up, our actual episodes. Yeah, You're get we them. started filming our actual episodes. We so are. those will be on YouTube now, too. They will be. You can catch them early and ad-free on Patreon, and then they will drop on YouTube a few days later. So make sure you are subscribed and click on notifications at youtube.com slash Sinisterhood Podcast. Check us out on TikTok as well as Cameo. If you're not familiar with Cameo, it's where you can order the gift that's going to knock your loved one's socks right off. Cameo.com slash Sinisterhood. You can have us do a custom video shout out. So rather than you saying Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, Happy whatever, instead you get us to say it. Mm-hmm. And that is a gift that can keep on giving because they can rewatch it anytime. It doesn't take up any space. You don't have to wait for shipping times except for it tells you on there how many days. But even if you wait to the last minute, there's 24 hour delivery too. So we can hook it up. Just put it in the message if you're like, it's an emergency, please. <laughs> Select 24 hour delivery. ship is on the line. <laughs> this is it. This is it. <laughs> we would love to swoop into the rescue. So head over to cameo.com and order your custom personal video shout out today. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm pretty much everywhere at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Sinister. Hope.